Step one, buy a tarp. If you were to read that at the top of a page, what kind of story do you think you might be entering into? What are the options? Can you definitively say at this point? Not yet. Could it be the beginning of a survivalist narrative? Hatchet? Could it be something more sinister? It matters what else is on the list. Step one, buy a tarp. Step two, call in sick to work. Still not clear. We might need more. Step one, buy a tarp. Step two, call in sick to work. Step three, relax at the campground. <laughs> okay, we've gotten enough information to understand what kind of story we're reading. Some of you still may be suspicious, maybe even hopeful for some action, but it's looking more ordinary and upbeat at this point. Hearing the whole list can make all the difference in how we might interpret the intentions around it. Our verses from Philippians today begin with a list. We are near the end of our time in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and today we're located in his final brief exhortation. And while two lists make up much of this passage, these lists are anchored by two imperatives. Two imperatives from Paul that we'll consider today. Think about such things and put into practice. Last year, all the emails from my kids' school contained a footnote with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. It was a way of explaining and encouraging the reading of what they consider good books, books that enrich character. And I appreciate that. What we dwell on, what we ruminate on, these things matter. What our minds linger and our hearts linger on forms us. And as we read our primary list in Philippians, we easily pick up that same sort of sense. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. But there's more. This list Paul gives the Philippians, it isn't a distinctly Christian list using primarily Christian or Jewish terms. In fact, it's a list of Greco-Roman virtues. It's a list of the values that the Philippians were raised on, values that preceded their engagement with the gospel and are upheld in Philippi. Of course, these were, they are, aspirational to any culture that upholds them. Just because Philippians broadly find truth honorable doesn't mean it is inherently a truthful society. That said, these are the esteemed values of their culture. What words come to mind from your upbringing 
or life, that if Paul were writing to you, he might say, whatever is blank. From around the world, there are a variety of virtues. Whatever is loyal, whatever is harmonious, whatever is pura vida, whatever is the good life, whatever is respectful, whatever is hospitable, whatever is enduring. In Austin, we might hear, whatever is generative, whatever is resourceful, whatever expresses care for the earth and its creatures, whatever is weird, think about such things. Paul is very aware that the virtues and vices of the Christian are at times at odds, even the opposite of the cultures into which the kingdom is breaking in. The Philippians, like us, had a value of self-sufficiency, which Paul unapologetically shifted away from and into Christ-sufficiency earlier in our letter. And yet here he is, using the language of a pagan Philippi. The word translated here for think about such things is not the Greek word we might use for meditate or ponder. Paul here is not merely saying, think lofty thoughts. The word he uses here is more akin to account for or reckon with. And he right in his translation of Philippians has it read, these are things you should think through. Another translates, consider carefully. The passage points us not in the direction of wholesale acceptance or wholesale rejection of these values, but towards discernment. What values have you been raised with? What values mark our context today? The invitation is to look at them in light of the character of God, in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Looking through the lens of the gospel, discern what is good. What of our understanding of these values does conform to Christ? But why go through the work of discerning these things, of reckoning, and if we're honest, of reckoning and still getting it wrong some of the time, when we can just not have anything to do with the entire mess? Get rid of those pagan words. Truthfully, there are moments when I get tired and sometimes feel like things are so intertwined, the good with the bad, Things are so messy and gray or complicated that I wonder if sorting it out is worth the energy and vulnerability. And yet I hear Paul's words, take into account such things. Why? The scholar Gordon Fee made an observation on the wisdom of such a charge. He writes, indeed, if one does not consider carefully and then discriminate on the basis of the gospel, what is rejected very often are the mere trappings, the more visible expressions of the world, while its anti-gospel values, relativism, materialism, hedonism, nationalism, individualism, to name but a few, are absorbed into the believer through cultural osmosis. 
Maybe one reason we can choose discernment over rejection is because wholesale rejection doesn't actually make us into more holy people. The Pharisees and the Gospels are prime examples of this. Another reason to take into account such things might be that it can be a way we can love the people around us. That the Philippians loved the people around them. Their extended families, their neighbors, their friends and co-workers. As the Christ followers in Philippi think through their values, particularly the ones they have in common with their new faith, they're able to find places of meaningful overlap, places where meaningful conversation and relationship can actually exist. Discernment allows us to engage meaningfully with the people and the world God loves, to come shoulder to shoulder with people who share proximate loves without diminishing or displacing our ultimate love. And when we're tired or maybe afraid, we're tempted towards wholesale rejection or wholesale acceptance of the cultural values around us rather than the humble, ongoing labor of discernment. But when we forego that labor, we miss out on not just the holiness we desire and not just the ability to love well those around us, but we miss out on knowing the God of peace who will be with us as we discern. Discernment is a meeting place for us and God. And when we forgo discernment, we forgo engagement with our wise and loving creator. What values do you hear or see in your place of work, at your school, amongst your friends and family, Consider carefully these things in light of the gospel, in company with one another and the Holy Spirit. Paul also invites the Philippians to put into practice whatever they have learned or received or heard from him or seen in him, our second list. If you haven't been with us, it might be helpful to recapture a little bit of what have they experienced in Paul. They've experienced his embrace of others and his embrace of suffering. They've experienced his hospitality, even though he was the stranger, the outsider. They've experienced his understanding of God, both in his teaching and in his actions. These themes of imitation, of looking to the example of others, are not new in Paul's letter, nor are they new in our sermon series. About three weeks ago, Father David asked the question, who in your life helps you to love Jesus? And just two weeks ago, Father Jonathan asked the question a different way. He said, who is the flesh and blood person in your life that helps you live strangely, helps you embrace suffering? And those are really good questions. And I will just add to them, just from a slightly different angle, another one in the same vein, who are the friends that aren't going to protect you from the cross, but are going to help you carry it? Who are the people around you who have taken up their cross, 
It's not always easy to see. You can't look around this room and tell who's taken up their cross or not, who in our midst has done this. But it's good to know and to have eyes to see, to look around, to ask questions, to get into relationship and figure out who are the people who have made choices or embraced a situation they didn't choose that lock them in to depending on Jesus. In his book, Being White, Doug Shop uses the image of a roller coaster to talk about this experience of this locked-in phenomenon with regards to race. And we'll expand it a bit, but imagine we are all on a roller coaster. Picture whatever kind you want, the one where your feet hang or you're sitting. But for our purposes, it's a roller coaster of kingdom citizenship replete with the benefits of gospel friendship, but also the certainty of suffering and displacement. The roller coaster is slowly tick, tick, ticking up that intimidating first ascent. This is slow and it's clunky. You might rock back as it etches forward, inches forward, and some combination at that point, if you've ever been on a roller, who here has been on a roller coaster? I assume most of us are well-versed in this, yes. And some combination of anticipation and dread begins to build in your stomach with each tick. But next to this particular roller coaster is a set of stairs. And the picture Doug paints is that if you have some kind of privilege, it could be ethnic, it could be economic. For Paul, it might be his Roman citizenship or his education or something from his earlier list in chapter 3, his reasons for confidence in the flesh. But if you have some kind of privilege, you have the option to say at any point up that ascent, nope, I'm out, and exit the ride. When we're tempted to imitate the happy people, the most successful, or the people who seem to make it look effortless, I want to invite us to turn our attention to the people who have made gospel choices to lock themselves in to that roller coaster of kingdom citizenship, to taking that ride, locking themselves in and don't take the stairs to turn our attention to the people who have chosen to depend on Jesus and to worship when they didn't have the choice but to be locked in. I'm sure many of you find yourself in those situations today where you feel a bit locked in and there is something you cannot get out of. These are opportunities to make the choice to worship. Find people who make the choice to worship in those spaces. The people who are locked in may not have the kind of life you dream of, one that photographs well or is the serenely pastoral life we imagine some have. We remember Paul is saying, imitate me from prison. Our dreams may need reconsidering. Think about those things. Who are the friends you have or friends you can make who aren't going to protect you from the reimagining of those dreams, who will help buckle you in, and who will ride next to you? Who are the people who have been on the ride that you need to learn from and imitate? 
On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He did this physically humbling act of service and then explained to them that they are to serve one another in the same way. They've come to understand what he's talking about both through his example, right? They've seen it in action and through his explanation of what he's done. And then at the end of it, Jesus says this, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not enough to know these things. It's not enough to have received Paul's ministry in the Spirit for us to receive his teaching in the Spirit. The blessing doesn't come in knowing. The blessing comes in doing. Put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. What from today, or from our time in Paul's letter to the Philippians, might the Lord be encouraging you to put into practice? Or what might you be putting into practice? What might you be locked into, but are feeling so very weary of today? Take heart. There is blessing in the doing. Remember, the God of peace will be, is already with you. Our passage today is bracketed by this God of peace. In verse 7, which is not in your bulletin, but precedes this, we are told that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. A good reminder as we undertake discernment. And then again, the God of peace will be with us as we put what we have received into practice. Just as all of Paul's letter spins kind of like the spokes of a wheel around the hub that is the Christ hymn, the revelation of Jesus, so our exhortation this morning that Paul gives to think and to practice is framed around, it's kept in place by this God of peace. The lists, while significant, and the imperatives, while important, are not ultimately what will keep the Philippians in the way of life. Whatever is discerned and whatever the resulting activity is animated by finds its meaning in its ultimate context in the light of the God of peace. This is the God who enters into places of strife places of difficulty, and brings not just calm, but goodness. This is the God who spoke peace to the raging wind and waves, who spoke peace to bodies ravaged by illness or demonic oppression, spoke peace to the disciples when he appeared among them with scars in his hand and side and said, peace be with you. This is the God who even now speaks peace to our anxious thoughts, our fears of the future, speaks peace to those relationships that feel frayed and fractured, the ones we have no hope for outside of him. Speaks peace to us today at the table, my peace I give you. And this is the God who will one day 
speak peace over the entire world. And in the words of Isaiah the prophet, of the greatness of his rule and peace, there will be no end. It is that peace, that God of peace, that is available to us even now and in this moment. By the Spirit, may we, Church of the Cross, be a people dependent on the protection and presence of the God of peace as we seek to discern and live out our devotion to the Prince of Peace. We ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.